Well, I'm so glad to be back with you this morning at Creekside. We're going to be in Numbers chapters 13 and 14 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you may want to get over to Numbers chapter 13. When I was about eight or nine years old, my dad used to leave to go to the office pretty early in the morning, just like I know a lot of you do. He would sometimes leave at six o'clock in the morning or even earlier before us kids were awake. And one morning I remember waking up and I heard the sound of my dad preparing to leave the house. So I thought that I would get up and just say goodbye to him, just give him a little hug goodbye on his way out the door. So I remember getting up out of my bed, and I walked down the hall pretty quietly because it was still early. I didn't want to wake anybody else up. And I walked into our living room, and I could see my dad. His back was to me, and he was headed out the front door. But just before he stepped out the front door, I said, goodbye, daddy. And he turned around and jumped about three feet in the air, And he put his hands out and he goes, yeah, like that. (laughs) Like he was going to karate chop me. Now, to my knowledge, my dad doesn't know any karate at all. But at that moment, he wasn't thinking about that at all. At that moment, if you've been startled before, all of us have been startled before, you're not really thinking about much of anything other than I am afraid and your body goes into this sort of fight or flight mode. I need to protect myself at all costs. And in those moments, we don't think rationally about what might be happening around us. It drives rational thought away from our heads. So he didn't process who was speaking to him. He didn't process the fact that it was a little boy's voice and not a robber's voice. He didn't, uh, he didn't process the fact that I said goodbye, daddy, and I, not, I'm going to shoot you or something along those lines. He just wasn't thinking that way in that moment. When we are afraid... We don't always think clearly, and when we're afraid, we don't always make good decisions in that moment of fear, especially when we're overwhelmed by fear. That principle is not only true in those moments when we're startled, it's not only true in those moments of primal fear, but I think it it holds true throughout our lives. When we are overwhelmed by fear and anxiety, we tend to make poor decisions. If I'm afraid above all else of running out of money, then the reality is that I'm not going to think long term, but instead I'm going to say all I want to do is hold on to whatever I have at the expense maybe of investing or of giving. If I'm afraid above all else of conflict with another person, then I'm not going to make good decisions about my relationships because I'm going to swallow conflict. I'm not going to confront it. And I'm going to allow those problems to fester and maybe destroy a friendship or even destroy a marriage. If I'm afraid of all else, of my reputation being damaged or harmed in some way, then I'm going to lack the boldness to step out And take risks in my life, both relationally and personally, for the sake of Jesus Christ. When fear drives my decisions, I don't make good decisions. Of course, the challenge we face is that all of us find ourselves at points in our lives where we are afraid. 
all of us. In fact, we can't always help the feelings of fear that creep into our hearts or that jump into our hearts when there's a real threat. In the same way that we can't help if someone sneaks up behind you and speaks and startles you, we can't help that immediate response. Fear is in all of us. And so we face that challenge of of how do we acknowledge that in the face of danger, fear isn't always a totally irrational, nor is it always a sinful response. But how do we proceed forward as we walk with Jesus Christ in a way that we're not overwhelmed by fear to the point that it keeps us from following God where he wants us to go? That challenge is the challenge that faced the nation of Israel right as they were on the border of the promised land. Let me remind you just to set a little context again for where we are in the Pentateuch. You remember God, by his power, had delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. He had delivered them from Pharaoh. He had led them across the Red Sea. He split it in half and led them across. He had delivered them. He had led them in the wilderness. He had provided for them. Day after day, month after month, he gave them enough food. Literally, food was raining from the sky. He gave them water to drink. He revealed himself to them. The people saw the power and glory of God in the tabernacle as they traversed the wilderness. So they've seen God move. And God had said to them, I am going to give you the land I promised to you, the land of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And here they stand now on the border of the promised land, having seen God's power. And God says, now's your time. But in the face of their fear, they're going to pull back. And instead of choosing to see the promises of God and the power of God, they choose to see the opposition. They choose to see the obstacles. And they make decisions only based on what's right in front of them, rather than on where God is leading them. So we're going to look at Numbers 13 and 14 this morning as we explore this challenge of fear and how it can affect our walk with Jesus. And I want us all to ask, as we, as we dive into this passage, when was the last time in your life that you said, God, I'm going to follow you and trust you wherever you lead, even if it entails risk? I'm going to follow you where you lead, even if it entails some risk to my reputation, even if it entails some risk to my bank account, even if it entails some risk, maybe even, to the success of my kids down the line. How do you make decisions in your life? How much of our lives is arranged around our fears rather than around the power and the promises of God? That's what I want us to explore this morning. Follow with me as we begin in Numbers chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the sons of Israel. And then verses 4 through 16 list each of the spies. Now let me pause for a moment. This is not an unreasonable thing to do. When you're about to enter into a land to conquer it, it's not an unreasonable thing at all to say, let's go check it out. 
Let's see what it's like. Let's see where the people are living. Let's see where we want to settle eventually. How are we going to conquer it? So God asks them to send these spies in, but notice God does not ask them to send the spies to determine whether or not they should move into the land. He doesn't say, I want you to send spies to see if you really want to do this whole promised land gig. He says, no, I want you to send spies to see what it's like. And the idea is, hopefully you're going to be encouraged once you see the land. And you're going to have a sense of how you're going to tackle this task. Now, drop down to verse 17. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. He said to them, go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country, see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob at Labo Hamath. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. I think we all remember Zoan. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol. And from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. When they returned from spying out the land, at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were. In their sight. Here's the first point I want to make. <clears throat> we choose what to see. We choose what to see. I want you to notice this. When the, when the spies go into the land, everybody sees the same facts. Is the land a good land? Flowing with milk and honey. With clusters of grapes so enormous that you have to carry them on a pole between two people. Absolutely. Are there also giants in the land? Absolutely. Did Joshua and Caleb see the same facts that the other ten spies saw? Absolutely. Right? The problem is not the, the facts. The problem is which facts you choose to see. Which facts you choose 
to focus on. And here's what happens. The 10 spies come back and, and you can hear it in their voice. They go, this is a great land, but there's some really big people. Anybody who knows anything about talking to people knows it's what comes after the but that really matters. So some of you will come up to me and you say, Matt, that was a great sermon. Agreed with every word. But, and I know what comes after the but is the thing you really want to say. And that's what the 10 spies do. They go, look, this is a great land. But we're all going to die if we go into it. And Caleb sees the other side. Yeah, there's some big guys. There's some big cities. But Caleb's looking at another set of facts. The other set of facts is this. God has told us that the land belongs to us. God gave it to us. Facts alone are never going to be sufficient to motivate obedience because we all can look at a different set of facts and choose to operate in a different way depending on which sets of facts we want to listen to. I have a friend in my life who periodically likes to let me know if the food I am eating at the moment is less than healthy. He says, hey Matt, Cheetos aren't good for you. But I'm not eating them because I actually think they're good for me. I know. You only have to look at them. I know they're not good for me. I don't eat them because I think they're a carrot, right? I eat them because I'm looking at other facts. Like, I love them. I like them. They taste good. They taste better to me sometimes than a carrot, right? Same facts. I get it. I know. Different response. Facts alone don't drive obedience. For the Israelites in this moment, they all see the same sets of facts. And they have to choose which set of facts to focus on at that moment. So both Joshua and Caleb, they say the facts that we're going to focus on are these, that God has promised us the land. God said, I'm going to give you the land. They also choose to focus on this. Remember, we worship a God who defeated the Egyptians, one of the most powerful empires in the history of humanity. God defeated Pharaoh and all of Pharaoh's gods. God parted the Red Sea. God provided for us in the wilderness. Every time the people have expressed their fear, we're not going to have enough to eat. We're not going to have enough to drink. We're going to die at the hands of the Egyptians. Every single time, God has graciously provided. And Joshua and Caleb say, I believe that we still follow that God and he will provide for us right now. We choose which facts to focus on. And so we may say, look, I know that Jesus has called me to the Great Commission. I know that he has called me to share the good news of the gospel with those that I know who don't know it. I know that eternity is at stake, right? There's one set of facts, and then we take a breath and we go, but if I do it, my reputation, my comfort might be at stake. That might cause conflict, and I'm afraid of conflict. Or we say, I know that the New Testament says that I am called to honor God with my money, 
to give to the work of the gospel, whether that be work overseas or work in the church. I know that. And I know that Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that you worry about will be added to you. I know that. There's one set of facts. But if I do it, I'm going to have to change some things. And I'm afraid of what's going to happen. Or I know that God has called me to be faithful in my marriage because marriage is an opportunity to reflect to the world the love and the loyalty of Jesus Christ. But it's hard sometimes. And it might not make me as happy as I would like to be happy. I know that what's most important The scripture says, is to train my kids in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord so that they can be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6 tells me that. But, what if they don't get into the right college? What if they don't advance in their sport as much as I would like? And so we move to control rather than to trust. We move toward fear, rather than toward faith. We choose which sets of facts to see. And what Joshua and Caleb choose to do at this moment is what God would call us to do anytime we face these fears, is to say, I want you to remind yourself of the facts of who God is and what God has promised. That if Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. If the scripture promises that the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead gives life to our mortal bodies and lives within those who trust in Jesus, then we say the facts on the ground that matter the most are that God has given us all that we need for life and godliness, and Jesus will never leave us. So I don't make decisions simply by what my eyes see. We choose what to see. Secondly, verses 14, or chapter 14, verses 1 through 10. We choose who to listen to. Listen to these verses. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregations of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. 
Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Not only do we choose what to see, we have a choice which voices to listen to. And again, in the face of competing voices, you got, you got two guys over here saying, God is with us. Joshua reminds them, this is a really good land. In fact, in the Hebrew, you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how if you want to emphasize something, you say it two or three times. Joshua says, this is an exceedingly, exceedingly good land. Guys, it's really, really good. Flowing with milk and honey. And God is with us. But the people listen to the other ten voices that say, yeah, but the, the Canaanites are tall. The cities are big. And we're going to die. Everybody in this room, all of us, we are influenced by the voices we hear. Nobody is immune to being influenced by those around us. We recognize that even when, when we're in junior high, when we're in high school, we recognize how much peer pressure begins to shape our decisions and our feelings. I remember very specifically when I was in about sixth grade, there was a student by the name of Brad. Brad was in my sixth grade class, and he began to uh, date, or as we said back in the day, to go with a young woman whose name was Nicole. Now, in sixth grade, I don't really know what all that entails. They could not drive. They could not uh, go anywhere on their own. I think it was just something they said while they were at school. But they were going together. And then Nicole decided she no longer wanted to go together anywhere anymore with Brad. So she broke up with him. And Brad was hurt. Brad was was a pretty well-liked, cool, popular kid, and so this hurt his pride. And so one day on on the playground, Brad began to gather some of his other friends, and they started to walk around the playground, and they chanted, we hate Nicole. We hate Nicole. Now what was interesting was that other people that didn't even know Nicole began to join in. We hate Nicole, right? And what started with three or four people chanting, we hate Nicole, ended with 50 people on the playground chanting, we hate Nicole. Who's Nicole, right? They had no idea. But the allure of somebody they liked and trusted at that moment was was just too great to resist the pressure to do something that by themselves they, they never would have done. I doubt any of them ever would have just walked up to Nicole to her face and said, I hate you because of how you broke that guy's heart, right? But in the crowd, all bets are off. And so what happens to the nation of Israel is one begins to listen to a voice and another and another and another, a voice that says, God is not good. Why did he bring us here? Because he's trying to kill us. At every stage, in fact, this is about the 10th time, literally, that the Israelites have rebelled against God in the wilderness. Every single one, they go, we should go back to Egypt. And again, with every single one, you want to go, do you not remember what was happening to you in Egypt? You were slaves. 
They go, yeah, but the onions were great. But Pharaoh took your children and he tossed them into the Nile River to drown. Yeah, but we had houses. We were safe. No, you weren't. You were slaves. But they choose to listen to these voices. All of us are susceptible to the voices around us. So I want to ask this question then. Who are the voices you listen to? Who are the voices you listen to? Are you surrounded in your life by men and women who remind you of the power and the promises of God? Or are you surrounded by men and women of cynicism? Do you listen to voices in the world that are cynical, that are doubtful? Or do you listen to the voice of God's word? We choose who to listen to. Psalm chapter 1, one of my favorite psalms. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. There's a progression here. You walk in the counsel of the wicked. You begin to listen. You stand. You stop and you stand now in the path of sinners. You're not moving anymore. And then you sit down in the seat of scoffers. This progression takes place in your heart to where you become one of them. What voices do you listen to? Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 23 to 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is why the scripture challenges us right here to connect with the body of Christ. This is why the early church met together every Sunday to worship God, to celebrate communion together, to sing songs of truth and praise about who God is. The reason is this, because every week we need to sit with a group of people who remind us of what is true. Because throughout the week, we are with a group of people, often, who give us a different voice. Right Throughout my life, there's been a certain kind of voice that I've, I've tried to avoid. I call it the just wait voice. It's those voices, those men and women or those articles or whatever that, that somebody gets married and they're excited and they're eager and they go, God has given me a blessing and God is good. And they go, just wait. Your marriage will be as miserable as mine in the next year. Or you have a child and you go, kids are a blessing from God and I'm praying for this kid and I have hope. And they go, just wait until your kids do what my kids do. Or you say, I'm going to give generously to my church or to those in need. And they just wait. You're going to run out of money or somebody's going to use your money in a way you don't like. Can't trust God's goodness to provide. When I was in college ministry, I would see students that would say, I want to I go overseas and share the gospel for the summer. Or I want to commit a year or two of my life to share Jesus with people who don't know him in another place. And sometimes they would have parents that would say, no, don't go because, because just wait. 
You'll get shot, beheaded, arrested. You'll waste your summer. You won't get a job. You'll live in a tin can. Just wait. What voices are you listening to? doesn't take much to pull up the news or pull up Facebook and find the voices of cynicism, the voices of unbelief, the voices of mistrust in God. doesn't take long at all. And at this pivotal moment in their history, the Israelites choose to listen to those voices of unbelief rather than those voices that said, no, God is good. I've been so grateful through my life to have men and women in my life that in those moments of fear and doubt, in those moments when I say, I I don't know what's happening here in my heart, in my family, with my finances, with my walk with Jesus, I don't know what's happening. I've had men and women who say, God is good. God is good. And you know what? Just wait because you're going to see the fulfillment of all of his promises. Just wait, because Jesus has promised to never leave or forsake you, even to the very end of the age. And so you're going to see that the day is coming when God's promises will be fulfilled. And that was Joshua and Caleb standing against the tide of the entire nation of Israel going, we can trust him, we can trust him, we can trust him. Which voices do we choose to hear? We choose what to see. We choose who to listen to. Thirdly, those choices have real consequences. Chapter 14, I'm going to start in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you slay this people as one man, Then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great. Just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Go down to verse 28. 
Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. These choices that they make have real consequences. Now, I want to be clear about something. God is not condemning all of the adults in Israel to an eternity in hell. That's not what's going on, right? Because Moses himself, in fact, didn't get to enter into the promised land. And later on, Moses would say, I didn't get to go in because God was angry at me. God was angry at me partly because of this incident right here. And so Moses doesn't get to go in the land. Do I believe we will see Moses in heaven with Jesus? Absolutely. We know that because in the New Testament, Moses appears with Jesus at the transfiguration. And the reason I make that point is to say this, that we believe that eternal life is a free gift. Right? There's nothing you can do or not do once you have trusted in Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do or not do that will cause you to forfeit eternal life. I believe that, that many, if not most, of these men and women in Israel at this moment, they believed in God. They, they trusted him. They will be in heaven. They have received eternal life because salvation is a free gift of grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, not as a result of works. But what did they forfeit? They forfeited the opportunity at that moment to have the life that God wanted them to have. They forfeited the opportunity to experience the fullness. Hebrews describes it as the rest that God had promised them. They forfeit a wild blessing from God. They forfeit the opportunity to see how God will move as they go into the land. Remember, this generation that disbelieved God's word at this moment, they didn't get to see the walls of Jericho fall down flat just because some people marched around it. They didn't get to see it. And so their choices have real consequences. Here's the point I want to make. If we listen to the voices of unbelief and mistrust, we might be secure. We might have plenty of money. But we might forfeit the opportunity to see God provide in ways that only God can provide. We might be able to control our kids for a period of time so that they can succeed in the world's definition of success. But we and they might miss out on getting to see them live a life of wild and bold obedience in the service of God. We might keep our reputations pristine and intact but forfeit the joy of seeing God answer prayers of faith as men and women come to know Jesus because we tell them about Jesus. Right, so there are consequences. Now, you're probably not going to die, and your life will look pretty good. You still receive eternal life, but there's a depth and a joy that God wants to give to our life, an abundance that God wants to give to our life, not an abundance of financial resources necessarily or physical health, but an abundance of the joy of knowing that I'm living in the center of God's will. Think about it 
this way for just a moment. When I was graduating from high school, I thought about a number of colleges that I could attend. I thought about going to Oklahoma because that's where my parents had gone. I thought about briefly going to TU because that was, I know, because that was where a lot of my friends were going. And I ultimately settled on A&M which was a great decision. And if I could counsel somebody in making that same decision today, right, here's what I would say. I would go, look, I know that Texas A&M, it seems like it's in a little town. There's maybe not as much to do in College Station as somewhere else. I know a lot of your friends are going to TU. And you could go there and you'll be, you'll be fine. You'll be okay. But your life will always be lived in shades of gray that you don't even understand. (laughs) There will always be a joy that you are not experiencing, and you may not even know it. Or you could come to A&M and have the life you've always dreamed. (laughs) Right? God says, look, you, you, you can live a safe life. You can protect what you have. You can say, you know what? I'm, I'm good. I know Jesus. I come to church at least one out of every three or four weeks. I'm here. I'm good. And you'll be fine. Because you don't know what you're missing. The men and women who stood on the border of the promised land, they didn't understand what they were missing out on. Because they chose to listen to voices of fear. They chose to see a certain set of facts a certain way. Here are the questions I want us to think about as we close then. First of all, Hebrews, again, chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why? Fixing our eyes on what? On Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why does Jesus do this? Because Jesus, for the sake of our salvation, chooses to focus on a particular set of realities, that God is powerful, God would raise him from the dead, and through what he did, humanity would have the opportunity to believe in Jesus and receive salvation. And so the author of Hebrews says, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus, on the reality of who he is, and run the race with endurance rather than on your fears. So as we close, let me, let me quickly ask a few questions of us. One, do you focus on your fears or on God's promises? When we think about obeying God, is there always, is there always some line where we say, you know what, uh, beyond this... I won't go any further because it will cost too much. It will be too scary. I don't know where God will lead me next if I I take another step forward. Do you focus on those fears or do you say the God that raised Jesus from the dead? Right, I think we all have the same set of facts. I think most of us in this room, you'd say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe the Bible is God's word. I believe the words of Jesus. You'd say that. We all have those, those facts but we choose to focus on fears. Do we listen to voices of despair and cynicism and unbelief or the voices of faith? What do you fill your mind, your heart with 
as you open up social media, as you open up the news, as you talk with your friends? What voices do you listen to? And then will you and I step out in faith as God leads us onward? I don't know what that will entail for you specifically right now. It may be that at some point there is some change in your career. That you say, I know as well as I can know that, that, that God has gifted me and called me in a way where I could have an impact that maybe you're not having right now and it might entail some uncertainty and some risk. Or it may be for some that God is, is going to call you to say, you know what, go overseas. Move from here to there or go for a period of time. Set aside a couple of weeks that would otherwise be vacation and it entails risk. Or it may be that in your own financial life, your approach to your money, you're called to step forward in a new way or to share the gospel or to forgive somebody who has wronged you. And you know it's going to be risky because it will involve conflict and awkwardness and fear. What might happen if I step forward to forgive first? The question facing us is really the same question that faced the nation of Israel on the border of the land. Will we step out in faith, focusing on God's promises rather than our fears, and move as he leads? Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word. We confess that so, so much of the time, so much of our lives are, are arranged so that we, we don't even come close to those lines that would make us afraid. We protect what we have, we protect how we feel, we protect everything that we think we need. When you stand with open hands and you say, I want to give you so much more than you can imagine. Help us trust you. Father, help us step forward in faith. By the power of your spirit, trusting in your power and your love. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and your Son, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.